I speak to you in the name of the one holy and living God. Theologian Howard Thurman said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. In an excellent thought-provoking book called Quarter Life, Satya Doyle Bayok observes that the common expectation for our life's trajectory and visions that in early years of adulthood, we put our energy into steps that create purpose and stability. We go to school, figure out a career, embark upon it. Many find a partner or mate and start a family, and off we go. According to this pattern, it is after we have created the direction and container for our lives that we may awake one day down the road in something of a crisis and ask, what is the meaning of it all? I feel restless. I climbed the ladder, but to what end am I being true to myself? Meaning-making, it is thought, comes in the second half. Well, Bayak, a Jungian analyst, questions this paradigm with attention focused on what she calls quarter-lifers, those in the first quarter, somewhere between late teens and early 30s, Bayak observes that while the common pattern works for those more naturally inclined to seek and create stability, there's a sizable number of us more naturally driven to discern or create meaning first before we have much interest in or can give any thought or attention to stability. She writes, quarter-lifers have typically imbibed a whole host of contradictory messages around how to be an adult, namely to be functional and successful, but also popular and attractive, wealthy and famous, intelligent and interesting, creative and entrepreneurial, but not self-involved or selfish, nor privileged or cruel or unaware of the world's pain. And in order to abide by these competing implicit and explicit directions, none of which are about genuine self-knowledge or self-care, quarter-lifers can become profoundly disoriented. In contrast, the more that quarter-lifers explore the information of their bodies and histories, their old traumas and stress, and their own points of desire and longing, the more they'll learn to hear what their hearts know about their futures." End quote. Bayak has me thinking about how we in the church create space, holy space, that supports young people and quarter-lifers of all stripes as they explore and blossom as beloved of God. 
paying most attention, most especially to those in society who, as Howard Thurman says, have their backs against the wall. But she's also prompted me to think about the expectations I set for my own children, now in their early 30s, as well as to look back on my life at the choices I've made through the years. For being fully alive, it's not a one-time event. In our texts today, and in the lives of the prophets, we're presented with the idea that one's calling in life is foreordained. John the Baptist tells us of his singular purpose, to point the way toward Jesus. Here he is, says John. I did not know him, but I came so that he might be revealed. He says it again. I didn't know Jesus, but the one who sent me told me that it would be the one on whom the Spirit descended. You'll recall that John's mother Elizabeth felt the babe in her womb leap with joy in the presence of her cousin Mary, then pregnant with Jesus. Again, John said to others, here he is. And the two who heard, Andrew and then Peter, followed. John's calling in life was to point the way to Jesus. He was born for this. He lived and died for this. Isaiah, too, was called from the beginning. Before I was born, when I was in my mother's womb, the Lord named me. And this beautiful language, as a polished arrow in his quiver, the Lord hid me away. But now Isaiah's calling and purpose is expanding. It's not enough. It's not enough that you raise up the tribes of Judah and Israel. I'll give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the world. Calling, and especially a sense of being foreordained, calling is a freighted term, and it may feel unhelpful to consider our own lives in the light of great souls such as Isaiah or John the Baptist. Nonetheless, I expect we each have a deeply felt sense of when we are being true to ourselves. And just as we know deeply when we are out of alignment and feeling restless, when we're being untrue to ourselves, and thus in turn untrue to others around us. I'm thinking of calling here not in the narrow sense of religious vocation. I'm thinking more broadly in terms of how each one of us seeks to discover and engage our particular gifts for our own wholeness and perchance as a blessing to others. One way to frame this is to ask, what is the unique way I was created to give and receive love in this world. Frederick Beekner's well-known definition of vocation as the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need, it's not just about me. 
not just about us. It's not enough to be some version of fat and happy or even fit and healthy. Dr. King often said that we are caught in a network of inescapable mutuality. Thus, he affirmed in one of his commencement addresses, strangely enough, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be." End quote. Even if we achieve and gain everything we think we want, at some point the world or those we love will break our hearts and we'll learn painfully, blessedly, that we are never, ever alone. I've known many people who have discovered that when they exercise their own gifts, it benefits others, or seems to benefit others, more than themselves. Someone with a giant, compassionate heart who gives themselves away all the time. An artist so devoted to and driven by their creative expression that other parts of their life language. Novelist Susan Howitch provides the memorable phrase, of costly charisms, costly charisms. I think it's debatable as to whether finding our true calling necessarily results in feeling good. I'm all for feeling in sync, in flow, catching those waves when our heart, body, mind, and relationships all seem to come together. But God is equally present in the holiness of our struggles, our diminishments, our so-called failings and weaknesses. Are these not just as precious and potent as our successes and strengths? Our weakness, our failings, these are opportunities for God's grace. And even if we feel clear and settled in our sense of purpose, let's say at quarter life, the need to renegotiate and perhaps start over carries through every season. At any age, a sudden twist, a loss of love, a newfound love, an imagined path or future no longer present or viable for some unforeseen reason. Well into our 80s and beyond, the loss of a spouse or a physical ailment leaving a familiar home and community can prompt existential questions about why am I even alive? What am I doing here in this life of mine? At every age, discerning our call can be both daunting and exhilarating, prompting feelings both of loss and of new lands found but if you believe, as I do, that God is present and speaking to us in and through the very midst of our lives, this is the holiest of tasks. I'll close with a story told by Jack Cornfield of a tribe in East Africa in which the birth date of a child is not counted from the day of its physical birth, nor even the day of its conception. The birth date comes the first time the child is a thought 
in its mother's mind. And aware of her intention to conceive a child, the mother goes off to sit alone under a tree. And she, there she sits and listens until she can hear the song of the child that she hopes to conceive. When she has heard it, she returns to her village, teaches it to the father so that they can sing it together as they make love, inviting the child to join them. After the child is conceived, she sings it to the, to the baby in her womb. And then she teaches it to the old women and the midwives of her village so that throughout the labor and her miraculous moment of birth itself, the child is greeted with its song. After the birth, all the villagers learn the song of their new member and sing it to the child. When it falls or hurts itself, it is sung in times of triumph or in rituals and initiations, and this song becomes part of the marriage ceremony when the child is grown, and at the end of life, his or her loved ones will gather around the deathbed and sing the song for the last time. As God said to the prophets, so God has said to you and to me, before you were knit together in your mother's womb, I knew you, saith our God. I set you apart. What is your song? Let us sing it with you, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Amen.